Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. So this is, I know this is a special one for me. I've had a bunch of songwriters on, on this podcast, like great, great songwriters, like Amy Mann and Steve Earle and Justin Towns Earle and Jason Isbell. Daryl Scott is in the league of, of all those people. He's, he's one of our great songwriters, a true treasure. And, and someone I first met a long time ago when I was in college and I had this very tight-knit group of friends in, in high school, one of whom, and all of us still know each other, which is a weird thing, and one of whom ended up meeting Daryl and, and playing me his music, and, uh, and then another friend ended up signing you to your first record deal, right. and, who was friends with Ed, too, and yeah. this whole crew, it was Ed Grauer was my friend and still, and Peter Gambarg, who, who now like runs Atlantic Records A&R, and... Uh -huh. and um, but Daryl, what I remember, and I'm going to do this off, off the top of my head, so correct me if I get lyrics wrong, but people, if, if folks don't know, and, and Daryl has written, written songs for some of the most important artists in country music. I mean, Garth Brooks and Travis Tritt and the Dixie Chicks and many more, um, and has made many albums of his uh, own songs. And he's also widely considered like the best guitarist in country music and one of the best guitarists in the country. Um, I'm sure Brad Paisley has something to say about the best guitarist thing. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, he's a monster. Right. There's no doubt. I, I know about you guys it. have played together <laughs> and stuff. Yeah, we have early on in his career, uh, and uh, we did a, a taping one time at the Bluebird, and we never met, really met nor played together, but we just both brought the fire that night. Oh, that's so know? sick. Well, yeah. this is what I was going to say, Daryl, is that as a writer, and and. What I plan to start with, and again, I'm going to do this off the top of my head, is there's this lyric, this song that I heard, and, and um, I know it ties into your actual life, and you just told me this is the song in which you found your writer's voice, which is something I obsess over. But before I was a writer, when I was a blocked writer, someone who couldn't quite bring myself to face the fear of doing it, once in a while I would hear, I would read something or hear a story song, and it would awaken something in me. Yeah. That feeling... You know that feeling. It's it's of this feeling of kinship, but also of uh, uh, so someone did that thing. And and these lyrics that open this song. That's my favorite song of yours, and one of my favorite songs in the world. Um, it's called Uncle Lloyd, and it goes. Um, he was not my father's brother, but though he wished that he could be. He told his kids to call him uncle, and we'd be his family. He had a wife and kids in Fresno. The youngest one was twenty-four. Dad had brought him into our house. When they didn't want him anymore. He helped us yeah. work the family business, right? <laughs> Building fences in the sun. He worked just like a man at 20 till the working day uh, was done. He and dad would spend their evenings uh, sitting in lawn chairs in the yard where they'd drink a toast to Seagram's. Se when originally you said CC, yeah. never went down hard. And then you changed it to Seagram's on the re record, on the, like, the recorded version of it. Yeah. But when I heard that lyric, and I hope people who are writers understand the economy of that, we just got an entire life, many lives, right? in that song. Mm -hmm. And so I was planning to start by asking how hard one it was to write something like that. Well, this, this song has an interesting story of how it even came about. So I was in, um, right, we both went to Tufts, right? Yeah, but you're, you were a couple years ahead of me. Yeah, I was a little bit ahead of you, uh, year-wise or whatever. And, and I was one of those who snuck into Tufts. So Tufts had a program for folks over 25, who had life experience, but they didn't have great ACTs or SAT stuff, right? I was one of those. So Tufts let me in, 
And um, and basically, the thing that drew me was uh, Philip Levine was the poet, the great poet, the poet in residence at Tufts. That's so cool. You knew that then. Yeah, yeah, I did know that. And uh, so then there I am in a poetry class with Levine. And then in the class with me, and we became friends, was a dude who was going to the Museum of Fine Arts who had an exchange with Tufts, like, you know, you can come and take classes there, or we could go take classes there and all that in MFA. Anyway, he's the dude in the leather jacket, the tattoos, the, the earring stuff and all that. And we get along real well and start hanging out. And then I play him some songs. And he, and he listens to my songs for a while and says, this is all radio shit, you know? This is all love shit. Why don't you write about something like, you know, that's real? Like, uh, how about you write a song about that guy you said hung around your house when you were a kid? He literally told me that. Really? Yeah, so in essence, he shamed me, right? That's fantastic, though. And so... And then I was kind of offended, of course, but about a week later, I kind of let it sink in, and it was like, yeah, why don't I write a song about Uncle Lloyd? And then, so that's where it started, but then once I got into it, it wasn't, you know, trying to prove anything to my friend. It was a story now, very personal story about me, my family, Uncle Lloyd, the alcoholism, you know, the hardworking people, all that stuff showed up. And before I knew it, I had a song that portrayed and showed to myself that I had found my writer's voice. And I'd been chasing it for, I was probably 28 then, for 16 years. I'd been chasing a writer's voice. And, and what I'd find a line here, a chorus there, a verse there, but never an entire song that just said, folks, this is simply who I am. I can't help it. This is just what goes on inside and, me. And it's it's funny or cool that then once you'd found that in finding that you also found this melody. Mm-hmm. That's a great melody, right? It's a radio melody, but and and somehow one, you know, out of your early songs it was a melody that really stood out cuz it's an incredibly catchy chorus too. It was like you were ready to have all of it come together. That's I think how that works. I could have never predicted it, but why in this shaming of my tattoo friend did my writer's voice show up in this song and then actually once the writer's voice appeared to me so to speak I had it from that point forward it wasn't like this elusive thing that showed up once and it was like gone again it was like oh my god something had finally broken open I can't exactly explain it but I recognized it and that's the most important part that that the writer recognizes like hey Okay, okay, here it is, and now spend your time doing this. <laughs> Here's who I am as an author. Well, right. It's like, well, well, it's also like a gauntlet, right? It's a dare to yourself, I think. I, I can, I, I accept that, absolutely. Can you, because I, I mean, I, I too can remember, I can remember when Dave and I were writing Rounders, and we there was one line that never was right to us and we over and over and I, we were almost done with the script and it's a line that's on the first page and then finding to get finding what it should be and what that meant about the language and what what we who we were willing to exclude and who we were willing to keep in in the audience the mm-hmm. difference between writing for the radio or writing for your leather jacketed friend yeah and locating it and knowing well that's the north star yeah yeah and can you keep can you can you 
can you keep having the faith to chase that North Star? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, it makes it a lot easier once you've found it once. It, it is like, oh, so there it is. And I can't explain it, but it was available to me from then forward. And so you also knew, you knew right away you'd done it? After the song was done, it, not exactly during it, but afterwards, um, it was like, yeah, okay, I got, I see it. Part of what that writer's voice was, was, so I grew up with four brothers, right? And we all had Uncle Lloyd in our presence, and we were all working on the fence truck company. You know, that's what we did as a family business. I, I maintain that my brothers would not have written Uncle Lloyd the way I wrote Uncle Lloyd. And that's part of the writer's voice distinction is that it's you. It ain't anybody else. It's not your brother who's sitting right next to you at the table. It's not your mom and dad. It's a very particular, individual, unique, it's just me kind of voice. It's, and, yeah, learning to trust the prism through which you see the world and that in the specificity of that is the only way to find something that might reach someone else. It's an odd... Irony, isn't it? That yes. the more inside we get, the more universal we get. Isn't that crazy? And and that's a lesson you you do you can. It's counterintuitive, but it does prove out over and over again. You, but as a mm -hmm. writer, learning to actually just live in that place is. I agree with you. It is when you know who you really are as an artist. It's mm -hmm. like this is, you know. I, knowing like sometimes people will see the show and and certain references that certain characters will make even today in someone in the writer's room i reference something and someone said like well very few people will know that and i said that's fine the people who know it will know it mm -hmm. and other people know that's just the way these people express themselves it's fine it's great and others will go seek out the reference yeah, yeah. they'll have to find it and that's yeah. fine yeah. but it'll feel real because it's the right ref it's the reference that came to me yeah, yeah. And, and it doesn't mean i mean you still have to work at it right totally it, it's not just the first line that comes to you but it's casting off the stuff that doesn't feel yeah well so you mentioned your brothers and and i, I was thinking about your work overall and what i wrote down is that like notions of family expectation loyalty and disappointment and rebirth run through your songs hmm. uh like the america you sing about seems to me to be full of people trying to dig in and plant their feet despite a kind of hopeless end result and, <laughs> <laughs> and even your hit songs and yeah it's mixed in there i'm i'm never fully completely depressive you know, hopeless, and I'm never really, like, on top of the world. But you know what? I That's a reflection of how it feels from this seat. Yeah, well, wh but where do you think your worldview came from? Like, if you just... Is it from your, the, the world you saw as a child? And uh, how'd you grow... Where'd you grow up? I grew up in northern Indiana early on. Well, born in Kentucky, Kentucky family for the last 150 years. Hillbilly folks, really, uh, tobacco growers, uh, coal miners, all that. And then somewhere in the 50s, a lot of Southern folks had to move to the no Great White North. Detroit, car factories, Chicago steel mills, you know, GE in Cincinnati. They just, there was a thing that went North. 
uh, Hillbilly Hillbilly Elegy talks all about this. Yeah, it's totally about that. Yeah. Uh, or the Hillbilly Highway that Steve Earle talks about. Yes. And so my family did all that too. And and so um, Northern Indiana, my dad was a steel mill worker. Uh, you know, then we got into fencing. Well, you can fence more days per year in California than you can in Northern Indiana. So we somewhere in about fifth grade, we in my fifth grade, we moved to California. What part? Uh, Southern California, like uh, San Bernardino Riverside area. So not L.A., but close enough. Ninety miles out. But to do the to do like Roseanne Cash did that too, actually. But to mm-hmm. do that sort of to do that business. Oh yeah, yeah. In essence, you can work more days per year, uh, weather-wise, and also California had. Uh, free uh, community college. And my dad knew that he wasn't going to afford college for his kids. And it was like, well, in California, they could go at least two years right. and not have to pay. So that was that was the, the mentality behind that. So there's northern Indiana, a little bit of Kentucky, Tennessee, and then southern Cal for, for my childhood. And was music important in your home? Totally. And it, I know your dad's a musician, but wh- how did it... You know, how did it seep in? Well, uh, it just was there. You know how some families might, I don't know, hunt together or go to the racetrack or the horses. I don't know, you know, bowling. Uh, our thing that we did was music. So, uh, and so all my brothers played. And so that kind of created both, you know, playing and music, but also a competition. So who who could play better, who could keep rhythm better, who could switch parts, you know, and who could, you know, sing higher, who could sing lower, all that crazy stuff. Can everybody could. sing like you can yeah, sing? Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, yeah, people don't talk about your singing as much because guitar is, but, you know, you've, uh, you all, from the beginning, you always had this voice that could do all sorts of stuff. Sometimes you could sing like Paul Rogers and sometimes you could sing like Merle. So mm-hmm. that was always, you were just always playing and singing songs. Yeah, I always was. Were you was constantly just, trying to develop your voice? You know, it's funny. I kind of didn't at first. I mean, certainly harmony, but personality-wise and psychologically-wise, uh, I was very happy to be kind of uh, hidden, uh, kind of in the background, you know, when it all came down to it, especially in an audience form. So, like, you know, singing leads was much tougher than just singing backgrounds. Being the front man, so to speak, was way tougher than being a side really? man. Oh, yeah. And so I wasn't prepared for any of that stuff uh, and was very happy to just sit at the side of the stage and, you know, play my ass off on whether it was pedal steel or guitar, piano, whatever, and not really take the, uh, the front man thing. When you were up until when you were like how, how old? All through high all, school? All through high school, all through my twenties. I didn't. I didn't kind of show up. On, honestly, here's here's the connection. I didn't show up until Uncle Lloyd showed up, and so once I found that writer's voice, that gave me a reason to be that I had not had prior to that. A reason to have to be the one singing your songs. Absolutely, because you had a specific. Now who, you're talking about right. Something that only you can talk about. That's right. And only if I've written, I don't know, three, four, five hundred songs, whatever it is, and I've had maybe, I don't know how many cuts, you know, four or five hits-ish, you know, 20, 30, 40 cuts, I'm not sure. I've got a few hundred more songs that need representation, so to speak. It's not going to happen in the hit parade, in the marketplace. It's going to be my ass singing them. 
And I finally came to that once I had songs that were, in from my estimation, worthy to stand up to and force my ass to get off right, the side of like, the yeah, stage. A song like Gary Indiana. I mean, the songs like that are about your yeah. your life or yeah. the world you saw. Right. And so that's when I understood, like, okay, I get to get up from the side of the stage and stand in the middle. I've got to speak, you know, between songs. I've got to sort of be uh, my version of a front man. <laughs> but, the, but the question I have about that is you do have strongly held opinions about things. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that, that you didn't know you would need to give voice to those in some way beyond just to your intimate people because you, you, know, you see the world. I think about the song you wrote about country music. And I know that's a late, late period song for you, but it, it does seem like there's a mission in Daryl's, in your songs. I got to that. Well, here's the difference, Brian. On the outside and from my childhood and all that, I'm, I'm a shy guy. I really am. That's not. That's not. No, I, I remember from when I first met you. Right. Thirty over thirty years ago. Yeah. 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 Shy is an easy role for me to play. Quiet, you know, almost unspeakable, kind of thing at at certain times. These songs made it to where I had to stand up to these songs this. that were larger than my shy self, and therefore, therefore, I had to step into something that I wasn't. On one level, I was prepared for because, you know, the pen is mightier than the sword type of idea, meaning the songs were stronger than I, the shy person, was. That's very powerful. And so I had the mission that you speak of is that mission when we're our true artist essence self. That's a powerful person right there. I don't care who it is, you, me, you know, whoever's listening, that essence thing is everything. And so that shy thing that I'd practiced for many, many, you know, all my childhood and all that stuff could not function while having this very powerful writer voice that says, you need to get out there, buddy. Or, you know, we can't figure out why this, why we're doing this. (laughs) Well, because it creates a split, right? If you don't, it creates some kind of the tension in not getting it out makes you, for me anyway, made me, at a certain point, I was older than you before I figured it out. I was 30 before I figured out if I didn't do this, uh, I would become toxic. Like yeah. I just realized, oh, if I don't do it, I'm going to be really shitty to everybody around me. So I better fucking do it. I wasn't shy like you, but what I was, so I was outgoing and social, obviously, and like able to talk to anybody, mm-hmm. but terrified of letting the, the artistic voice what if that wasn't any good? It was probably right. so scary to me. Yeah. But finally, yeah. I was like, if I don't fucking do it, I'm a dead man. Right. That's exactly what I got to. And that Uncle Lloyd song was that get out of jail free card that I'd, so to speak, been chasing or looking for for a very long time. So part of you knew it. You mean part of you would sit in the back of the classroom, would watch the other kids wise off, Part of you knew, I'm thinking about things and seeing the world in a way they're not, but I don't know how to, I have to, like part of you felt that pressure right up until you did the thing? Yeah, and and on some level I still do, and I just turned 60 like last week. Uh, Some of these things aren't easily shed. (laughs) (laughs) 
And then, you know, at the same time, like, hey, it's been a constant companion, this shy thing or this, you know, I better speak up thing and all that. So, you know, I don't have the answers, but once I found the writer's voice, it was like there was an identity and uh, an essence that I recognized. And then it was like, well, I can't be talked out of this any longer. That's the best. When you- and then off I go. When you uh, started playing that song for people, did they recognize, or did you get back from people right away? Yeah. Oh, dude, you're the real thing. Yeah. You know, because actually, you know, like some of our old friends like Ed, you know, and, and Pete, you know, were some of the first to hear it, in fact, you know, because uh, uh, that's just the way it was. Well, I you and Ed song. were like in some self-help thing together, and then... Yeah. Right, and so then you, yeah. I guess part of that, you played the music for them or something? Well, somehow or another, I can't remember exactly what it was. I mean, we were in college dorms together over in London, uh, me and Ed, and, you know, you're playing and you're partying and you're having a great time and all that. But, yeah, Uncle Lloyd would have come out in some of those sessions. As a matter of fact, it probably was in London, you know, uh, that Ed first heard the song and then... You know, and yes, I started getting feedback of like, yeah, the Uncle Lloyd thing is is really good and all that all that style of stuff. And so on one hand you have you're getting the feedback and on the other hand you've got this internal feedback that says this, this is your stuff, man. This is your voice. Keep coming this direction. And which then prodded you forward to keep writing more. And is Absolutely. that when you made the decision I'm going to try to do this for like my life as an I'm going to try to go be a recording artist. Yeah, it was because I had the songs. Growing up, what did you So, I was talking to when I I was talking to Getty Lee about the 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 cuz I was thinking about you as a musician, the guitar playing piece cuz Getty said that getting to be so good at the bass guitar, so proficient gave him a kind of a defense in a way against, you know, if he was picked on or if he was shy, the fact that he knew, well, well I'm a lot, there are a lot of things you guys could all say about me, that, but, but I'm going to become like the world's best bass player. Yeah. And <laughs> as the world's best bass player, like there's nothing you can do really because I am this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, we could obviously argue about if there are, 15 bass players better than Getty Lee, but he's one of the best bass players of our like yeah. lifetime. And I'm wondering if the guitar, which started as a joyful thing, I'm sure, when it was it also like, well, no matter how shy I am or whatever, I have a secret, and that secret is like, I'm a badass on the guitar. You know, it it was, uh, and here's how it would show up. So again, there's that shy guy, right? Yeah. I'm 16 and I'm shy playing in clubs. I'm 20 and I'm shy playing in clubs or wherever I am at by that point. And also, I'm, the shyness also means I'm not dating. Right. I don't know how to you don't. ask girls out. I simply don't have the small talk ability. I don't have <sighs> any of that. But you know what I have? I can go to my house in my room and learn guitar stuff. And I can, you know, dig Jackson Brown or Merle Haggard. And you know what I mean? And that became my solace, yes. to tell you the truth. Of course. Because I, I would have loved to have been, quote, more normal. You know, but I just, it wasn't a card I had to play. No, it just wasn't in the, no, like you're, you just weren't, that's not who you were. You weren't a regular person. And I wanted to be, I can tell you that, but it wasn't there. What was there was, dude, play, you know, 
and and play other instruments you know like in my family band i mean of my dad and brothers and all that you know i'd pick up a pedal steel at 16 or 17 a banjo here or there a mandolin and i could figure them out like pretty quickly um not in any masterful way but it's certainly in a oh my god there's there's the melody to whatever you know and i can find it and I could figure out the logistics of instruments, and so there was a very strong amazing, yeah. sideman studio kind of guy in in the making right there. And did you know that was a path that you could take? Like, was you aware of that? Were you close enough to understanding there was a business of music because you were somewhere near LA? That you, how did you know this was? Like, when did that get in your head? Well, I think I'm going to do this stuff for uh, my life. Well, you know, Guitar Player Magazine back yes. in the day had an article every month by. Uh, Tommy, uh, oh, what's his name? I can't believe Tedesco. I'm going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he would write about sessions. Yes. And each each month he'd say, "Well, here's a session I played, and it was." And he was a good writer. He was fun, and the, that was my fantasy I, as as a studio I, I, player. I read that magazine all the time because you know Zizzo was in it when we were kids. Uh huh. Peter and yeah. and and so like we would just always read. The, I would always read that magazine. So I remember that. So you would read that, and it gave you, uh, oh, there could be this. Yeah. I could be a session musician. Yeah, that was always back there. And I would always read the back of covers of records and see, like, who who played acoustic on that and who was that lead guy and, you know, who wrote it and all that. I knew all that stuff. And did your friend, did people at school when you were this person, because I'm, I know there are people listening. I, I, we talk about this at home a lot, too, because all four of us are writers. And um, this weird thing when you're someone, bef- before you're doing it professionally or there's this thing where you're both kind of like outside of everything and inside of it because a part of you is processing it just differently. Were you aware that that was happening, that you were looking at things differently than most people? That was a slow turning. Um, I eventually got to that you know, place knowing that the way I was looking at things as a player or as an arranger yes. or as possibilities of music. Like, why can't R&B sit with country? Yes. Why can't singer-songwriter sit with strings or jazz or this, that, and the other? All of that was just kind of in the making for me. Like, uh, I would absorb all of that stuff. And then when it comes to the marketplace of, like, a gig, you know, I played bar mitzvahs. I played uh, right Hawaiian gigs, weddings. I mean... Yes. Blues and, band, you, I, everything. Well, yeah, one of your great songs, you know, is about I guess a guy you met at one of those, right? The man who could have played bass for Sean and I. You, did yeah. you meet him at one of those kind of events? Yeah, it was uh, Knights of Columbus in South Boston. But that's the other part of what I'm talking about, which is because you're this great storyteller, and um, and yet you weren't in there telling stories to your friends because you were shy in the back. Like you right. weren't gabbing it up, right? So no, no, that this is a very private, isolating situation. The creative process doesn't need an audience. Now, maybe it gets to an audience through distribution, X, Y, or Z, you name it. But that act of pulling out and going forward with something internal is a very private act. Very private. Now, you can co-write, and that's still private act of two people now instead of one, uh, especially when it works well, a co-write. Uh, but it's a very private act. It's it doesn't. As a matter of fact, it's harmed by an audience. An audience doesn't 
will scare, so to speak, the muse away, and you can kiss a good song goodbye. I agree. I agree. And so were you writing, were you, because just to connect all these things, like you mentioned Philip Levine, in high school, when you couldn't ask a girl out or early in college, were you, were you writing were, if you had a thought, would you write it down? Absolutely. Were you writing poems and I was, not sharing them with anybody? Absolutely. It was a private affair. I, and I had been since 12 years old. So how'd that start? Just almost writing in a journal, confessional style, like no one is to read this shit. You know, this is mine. And so I started that way. I didn't, even though it would have been very easy to have shown a song to my brother or a poem to my dad, because they're all creative folks. No, there's, there's this inclination that says, this is private, this is just for me, and I'm going to keep it that way. As a matter of fact, in my family, how I got busted that I even wrote was my brother found a lyric um, of mine, actually, but he thought it was my dad's, and, and he put a tune to it, because <gasps> that's what my dad would do, or my brother. He you was mean your dad would leave a lyric around and your brother would put a yeah, tune to it? Yeah, well, he found my lyric put a tune to it and I could hear him in the other room singing it to my dad saying, Hey dad, I found your song. And he sang it. And it's like, dad said, well, that's not mine. And then I had to come out of the room <laughs> and confess that it was my lyric. So and, now and, I was busted. And did they say like, Hey dude, you can do this or did they give you shit? I, I don't recall what I recall was this huge, like embarrassment that somebody found something that was private. You know, I, huh. I was glad to be isolated. I didn't need, I didn't want an audience, including my brothers or my dad, about this thing. That's how private this thing is, actually. Um, and I teach songwriting workshops. And the main thing I tell students, among other things, is, folks, this is between you and this thing. This isn't your girlfriend. This isn't your boyfriend. This isn't your mom, dad. This is nothing. This is so personal that it's about the equivalent of, of writing in a, a journal uh, all your inner thoughts and you ain't going to show it to anybody. That's, that's real close to what this is. I couldn't agree more. And I, then, but then the irony is then we bust out on the other side. Then we have to. <laughs> but the, the actual creation can be destroyed totally. by, by... I mean, that's why I love The Artist's Way, you know, by Julie Cameron, because... One of the things that she talks about in there, I mean, I love the morning pages. That's kind of what changed my life, being able to do them every day. But the idea that we want to defeat ourselves by showing the stuff too quickly yeah. before we're strong enough to, before right. we know it's done, before yeah. it is what it is, some part of us is so scared of the, of, of the, that we might have something to offer that we want to let it get destroyed. And so I, one of the things I say to people is when you, if you have an idea to do something special, when you go home for Thanksgiving, don't fucking tell them. Mm -hmm. Wait. Mm -hmm. If you tell them, they're going to tell you why it's stupid. Yeah, and, and convince you of something you've heard for all your life. Right. Yeah. Wait. Mm -hmm. Just wait. Keep it private and to yourself. Yeah. But... But as you were writing that stuff, and then you had it starting to amass when you were young, at a certain point, you must have, and you were getting up on stage, and you went to college, you must have brought a guitar with you. Did you start sometimes as a way to sort of connect with people? Did you start playing songs? Did you play cover songs? Would you? Well, I was playing, even as I went to Tufts, I was playing 
bars, honky tonk, you know, Friday, Saturday night stuff, like, you know, every week. And you were, were you singing too or not? Yeah. But, you know, Merle Haggard songs, Waylon Jennings, Gordon Lightfoot, whatever, you know, uh, not my own stuff. My own stuff would be what you might hear if you were a real close friend of mine and we were hanging out and about our third visit out would come, you know, by the way, I write songs myself. Because that shy thing is still part of my my thing, I think. Uh, you know, even now, I still won't play songs until they've done all the incubation they need to do on my part. I won't play them to anyone, a fellow writer, Your an wife? audience. No, not really. Right. No, this that's how private this is. It's it really you could still is be that. hurt. Can you still be hurt by a reaction to something? You know, it's not that. I mean, on one hand, you could say, "Oh, the dude just is afraid to get hurt." In my case, it doesn't feel that way. It feels like I have such a strong bond with this creative thing that I don't need an audience for it. You know what I mean? It it will lessen the the power if it gets out too soon. It needs to stay between me and this thing, and then I could pop out with it. Once I, it's past my... Once your emotional engagement with it is actually sort of dissipated. Yeah. yeah. Right? Once you're... Once I, you know something. Yes. Like, I'll give you an example. Yes. So I wrote a song called You'll Never Leave Harlan Alive. It's a great song. Yeah. Thank you. Love well, that song. the first time I went to visit Guy Clark... And his wife, Susanna, in very guy fashion, you know, anytime he had visitors, you know, he says, play me a song. Well, that's the song I played. And so here's an example. I finished the song, and it's just Guy and Susanna as my audience, right, in their, in their kitchen. Guy says, that song's too long. And Susanna looks at Guy and says, Guy, you're wrong. That song is perfect the way it is. And she looks at me and says, the maestro isn't always right. And so, but here's the point. I did not take Guy's, you know, commentary internalized and change the song. I knew it was done. And it even Guy Clark or fill in the blank can't talk me out of it. How have you not written a song called The Maestro Isn't Always Right? <laughs> Let's write it together. We gotta write that song, it has to get written, man. I mean, it's right there. It's right there. Was Susanna as amazing as everybody says? Like, there are all these songs about everyone being in love know, with Susanna. That, yeah, she's great. She was great, and uh, Guy's Muse for sure. You know, creative spirits. Imagine two... Well, here's one for you. You know how they came to Nashville? Was Guy, Susanna, and Towns... Yes. ...living in, a, in an apartment or a house or whatever together. Imagine that. Well, no, and Crowell. Party. And then Crowell came. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were all there, right? Totally. Car- but, Crowell has an album that's all about that time when he moved to Nashville and, and how everyone... In this song, he says in one of the songs like that everyone was in love with Susanna. yeah. She was just that kind of uh, spirit, and it was also a kind of not-give-a-fuck kind of uh, a spirit, f- especially from a creative point of view. It was talk about somebody who will not be talked down from their creative position would be Susanna Clark. And, and, or, or you, once you've done it. Cause the, so y- y- had you played that song for God? Because for people who don't know, so someone, anyone who knows your, your music will know who Guy is, but if you're listening to this podcast, 
and you're not really someone who knows this tradition of music, Guy Clark's one of the most important American songwriters. And, yeah. and I mean, go go stop the podcast and go listen to Old Number One and then come on back <laughs> yeah. uh, to the podcast <laughs> so you'll understand uh-huh. that, that Daryl's playing his song for one of the true greats. Absolutely. And were you nervous? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why I had to dig out like one of the best I had. To play for them. And that one hadn't been on an album? It had not no, been on an album yet? No. I don't even know how new it was. It could have been a year old or three weeks old. I don't I don't even remember. But when he asked for me to play the song, a, a song, that's what I brought out. Yeah, everyone has to learn their own... Um, like, I know the first 24 hours, basically, after I write a scene that matters to me, I can't be talked to about it at all. I'm sure it's just an awesome... Like yeah. I'm, you know, for the first like twenty four hours uh, or so, it's just great. Then, so, but if I showed it to somebody then and they were like had a problem with it, it would really I would have I would argue I, I wouldn't react like a professional. I would react in a very childlike, emotional, emotional yeah. way. Mm-hmm. But then twenty four hours later, I can read it and I go, oh fuck twice as long as it should be. The, mm-hmm. Suddenly, I'm working on it from a different place. And after that part of it, I could show it to anybody. And then now yeah. let's, how can I, you know, now let's, we can like. And then let's just call that our process. Right. And our own timing. And we're all, we're going to have, we're, we're each going to have some version of that to where it's still incubating in that 24 hours. That's right. You know, really. And then we can separate enough to then, so to speak, edit in a different kind of way right. than when we were in the blush yes, period. Yes, in that in the, that poetic sort of reverie. Yeah. That th- whatever that thing is that happens yeah. when it's when it's going. Yeah. It does. You become a sort of very amplified version. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. it's it's difficult. It's fat. This is the stuff that fascinates me the most because like finding your artistic center. It's such a battle for so many people because it's so also scary. Yeah, I understand. It was for me too. I wreck. I heard it in others. I mean, here's some. Yeah. Do we know a Leonard Cohen song, even if it's not Leonard singing it? I think so. Yeah. Do we know a Joni Mitchell or a Gordon Lightfoot or a Jackson Brown and all? There's something indelible to songs or works. That is just that artist, even if it's coming from the voice of someone else. No, it's true. I mean, for me, like Dylan and Lou Reed are sort of like the two, you know, my two very, very favorites. And I agree with you. I understand what, uh, I mean, Bob, you you know, everybody sings his songs and you do immediately. Even if it's one you don't know, you're like, well, wait, what is that? That's, that feels like something. Also, Mm -hmm. when Bob plays an old blues song, somehow he makes it a Bob Dylan song Mm -hmm. through that, through whatever that process is. Who, so I had this question to ask, who were you originally writing and playing for? But it really is yourself and your muse, huh? You know, when it all boils down, it really is. It's funny, I could be a, here's the separation as a player, or let's say a background singer or an arranger, or producer, whatever. Um, I'm very open. I'm very uh, community oriented. I'm, I'm, I'm just open. And when it comes to the songs, I'm kind of like a, a Papa Bear type of thing. And so for whatever reasons, I'm much more protective of, of that part of me. Well, so then how did it feel? Because 
I do want to talk about, you know, I, I was around for this huge disappointment in your life. I wasn't at the record company, but I was friends with all the people trying to help. Yeah, yeah. And, right, I was at a different, I was at a lecturer. You were signed to SBK, but yeah. my dad was like one of the guys at that, ran that label. Pete, who signed you, was my dear friend, and Ed was managing you. Was <laughs> like, so I watched it, and I watched the difficulty of this album you made that didn't come out for years later. And so much of what I talk about is when Dave and I wrote our first script, um, it was passed on by all these people. And then it sold months later. And then all the same people who passed on it called to tell us we were geniuses. Right. Like the same people. And I would read them. I would read them what they said when they passed. <laughs> like, you know, because I was like, well, I don't understand. The thing's the same, man. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, how did you – so you made an album. Then the commercial people decided it wasn't commercial. And they gave you back the album, essentially. Meaning they didn't put it out. Well, I, I honestly, just did, I wish they'd have gave, given me so back what happened? the album. Well, my understanding of it was I. Could, I don't really. Yeah, tell me. I couldn't record the song. Re I couldn't record the songs for seven years. But the album didn't come come out then, right? Or it did. It did not come out. It's never been out. The SBK album has never been out, and nor did I have the rights to even re-record the best songs I'd ever recorded or written. And so that's the juncture right there. Yeah, so what like, happened? So now what? So there I was in Nashville. I'd moved to Nashville because Nashville is something I avoided all my life until it was like, um, that's where I'm going to go now. <clears throat> the reason being, here, here we go back to that private artistic thing. I knew that Nashville had the capacity to change people's artistic integrity. Right. Why? Because I'd seen it happen to just like about everyone I All these great I cared for. So I didn't want to be one of those. So I avoided Nashville, even though I grew up in country music, you'd think that's the first place I'd go. No, it'll be the last place I go until I can get myself together, meaning artistically, and then I can't be talked out of it by a label, by misfortune, by fortune. That's how strong this is to me. So I didn't get to Nashville until I was about 32-ish, 33. Was that after the album was shelved? Yeah. So you had this album shelved that you put everything into. Yeah. You were heartbroken. Yeah, I was. Yeah. And angry. And, I mean, rightly, you know, rightly so. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, they were making commercial decisions based on whatever they were. You know, I business totally, people make their own decisions. I totally understand. I've had to learn this on... I, had to I learn bet this you have. From all these sides of it. I've yeah, lived it. Of course. I mean, it's why I don't want to be an A&R guy. I, I couldn't stand being in between an artist and the world. Like, in the end, it just was... It killed me. Right. My, my allegiance was in my heart completely with the artists. Then the... It's the thing that you say happens in Nashville, but then you got these other people paying you, telling you, and not just telling you, the, it's the, um, the incentives, the, mm -hmm. all the stuff. Like, here's your health and benefits, here's your life. But then on the other side are these people going to this private place that you're talking about. Yeah. And I, my heart was there, but my business, so I had yeah. to quit and I had yeah. to leave it. <laughs> no, I mean, I did. I had to leave it. But so you're in this spot where you've, you've been, been rejected in this way. Yeah. Yeah. What happens to you? How do you pick yourself back up? Well, it's a big look in the mirror that basically says, am I an artist because SBK gave me a deal? Or am I an artist because I write Uncle Lloyd and Shanana and 
You'll never leave Harlan alive. And then I know the difference. And so basically, that in essence made me stronger. So yeah, it, it knocked me down and took the wind out of me for a good couple of years. But then really, the, new, the Nashville office of EMI, which was the publishing that I was with, with the SBK deal, in essence took over the New York contract and said, yeah, y'all aren't doing anything with him up there, we understand, but we want him down here. Um, <clears throat> at that same general time, I'd actually moved to Nashville. You know, I, I turned in the album, and like literally, like a month or two later, I moved to Nashville. I did that f for a couple of reasons. A, I was now ready for Nashville in terms of I'd found my voice, and Nashville wasn't going to talk me out of it. And Boston was expensive, and we were making no money. Nashville, my dad had a house I could buy from him pay when I can type of deal. And um, and I did not want to be another story like Sean Anagai, uh, telling other musicians on break while we're getting stoned, uh, you know, about some story that I had a, a record deal, but then it, it went south, and here I am still playing a Knights of Columbus, you see. I was not going to be that guy. So we had to go to Nashville, I mean, so to speak. Um, and the, the strong figures I knew in Nashville were very strong figures. Guy Clark I knew and had written with. Um, a guy who played with him forever, Verlin Thompson. And then a Native American artist named Bill Miller. So three strong figures. Not Mamby Pambies, not... So those were my... And Sam Bush. I knew Sam Bush. Great mandolin player, you know, monster bluegrass, new grass guy. Those were my contacts. So I started in Nashville with, you know, people who knew who they were and were not going to be talked out of it, and I wanted to be among that group. And did you know you were going to try to get covers and be a session player at first in order to build back up to making your own records? Yes, I, I did. That is what I did. Uh, I started playing sessions. Uh, I got in, oddly, with a, a jingle company. Amazing. And so there I am playing Ego commercials, you know, Cadillac, Budweiser. Right. And what it was was high-level musicianship for like 30 seconds. Like, you're just blazing. Uh, no, it's amazing. I've watched even the song. Like, a guy like Greg Morrow will go play at a song mill if he has a day off. And it's, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, Greg is like one of the great drummers. And it's uh -huh. like, those are the people, right? Guys will just go do it. That's great who's players. on the session. Yeah. And so I learned... You know, exactness, you know, ring out at the end of a song, everything on a high intensity of, a, of commercials. And then those same players would be heading next session to you, you, you name it. And they'd take you with them sometimes? Eventually. Eventually that's what happened. And so that's how I got into sessions. And then the publishing thing was, you know, the New York thing fell through. So now Nashville picks me up. And it was really the, the head of the office down there that said, you know, and knew about the album that didn't come out. And she said, Daryl, we have a studio downstairs. Why don't you just make an album? De you know, and we'll call them publishing demos. That'll be the budget. Right. But why don't you go downstairs and, um, and just make an album? And then, basically, I did Aloha from Nashville. Right. Aloha meaning hello and, and goodbye. goodbye. <laughs> yeah. No, Because I didn't know which way it was going to go, honestly. I, but if I had another chance to say something... I, you know, I'm going to start blasting. My way. Yeah. Can you talk about what 
how you got your first big cover and what that all felt like and did to you in terms of, even though you didn't need external validation, I'm just wondering what the effect of getting that external validation did. You know, it's a funny line because on that self-essence thing, you don't need the validation, but then the human part yes. absolutely <laughs> wants validation and, and the money yeah, and the notoriety or the better gigs or the better this, that, and the other. Um, it's different going to the Bluebird and doing a songwriter circle when you've had Travis Tritt and Garth Brooks sing your songs, right? Yeah. I mean, just different. Totally. And, and, and those happened very close to one another and the Dixie Chicks and, and the Tim McGraw or Faith Hill, all that kind of stuff was a relatively short amount of time. Um, but so what, how did it happen? How did it first happen? Well, first of all, it was eight years of nothing, right? So you go to Nashville, you don't get a cut for eight years. Yeah. Sick. Yeah. You're, but, you're, but you're earning a living playing sessions. I'm a session guy. And, and you then, did become known as a great guitar. Like, I will say you were written about and stuff. People knew you were a great guitar player. Yeah, and I'd be on Guy Clark. See, yeah. I was not only on Music Row stuff. I mean, eventually I got out of the jingle stuff. Yeah. But that transferred into publishing demos and then masters, meaning records. Um, and then so I'm on, you know, Music Row love stuff. I'm, a, I'm one of the first calls there for, for a period of time. And then I was also though on Steve Earle Records and and uh, uh, Guy Clark Records and the cool stuff. So it wasn't just you know I'm just a, a session cat only for Music Row. I was also on damn good Guy Clark Records. Right. And uh, then I started duo with Tim O'Brien. I'm on in Sam Bush Band for two years. So I was doing a road thing of sorts, and then coming home Monday through Friday and being a session guy. I literally would take a red eye from L.A. on a Sunday night and be in a Monday morning session by flying in at 8 a.m. Right, to being, go play with those, those yeah, players. with those players at 10. So I kept about three different things, uh, plates spinning. Um, as far as the first cuts, though, like I remember the Garth Brooks cut. Was that um, first? N- no, it wasn't, but it was like significant. Because huh. he was selling like $7 million. You had it. So how did it happen? Um... Well, Garth recorded at a place that had a publishing house, and we wrote the song at that publishing house. So there was a connection between, you know, when a song comes in and gets can be pitched to Garth, is easier when Garth is a holder of part of the publisher. Sure. <laughs> sure. And uh, and um, and so we got that cut. And what it meant was not that it was a hit, but that it sold seven million copies, type of deal. Um, and to the town, landing a Garth Brooks cut is a big deal. It, yeah, it totally. makes you matter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they start Did you get to attention. talk to him? No, uh, I never have met him yet. Still, you've never met him? No, no. So you didn't get to go to the session. Did they say the no. song was on hold first and then... All of that, yeah. And did you take that emotional ride or had the SBK you know, experience made you not take emotional You know, rides? I knew at that time, like, don't count this until it's at Walmart. Right. Then I'm the you same got way it. about this stuff. Because otherwise, it's hocus pocus. It's, it's smoke and mirrors. Uh, and I would never ask myself to be invited to a session. You know, I, when I hear it on the radio, I'll know that it was released. Because prior to that, I just, anything could happen. We know this. We know that anything could happen, even if it's, they say it's first single. 
It may mean, not be for a single. It may not even bank the record. That's right. <laughs> All that stuff is true. Of course, that's true. So you trained yourself in that way. I knew it instinctively. And I think the New York Times sort of helped me to get there. Yes. Uh, and that's cool. Uh, like, why should you go buy a new house on the premise that no, Garth no, is going to cut your song? Right, wait till it's in, yeah, yeah when, it's, when you can go pick up the album. Was that surreal? When you heard Garth singing your song, though, what, did it feel wild to you? Because I can't imagine what, you know, people, someone asked me the other day, like, if I, and I've had, obviously, lots of actors say my words. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I don't know, I can't, it's different somehow. Like the thought of someone singing a song I wrote like that, it seems like it must be mind-boggling the first time you hear it. Um, some of the biggest lessons I've had on that uh, has come from like the Dixie Chicks. So I'd heard they had cut, you know, Long Time Gone. Yeah. <clears throat> but they'd also cut, I'd also heard they'd cut 40 songs for a 12-song right. release. And then did I, do I make it to the 12? Yeah, you made it to the 12. Some months go by, and it's then, you know, uh, well, they're thinking of it as first single, and it's like, you know, whatever. I, I haven't even heard it. The first time I heard it, I was driving with my kids in the car, and, and there it was on the radio. That's, that was a particular moment because, um, because I'd, there it was. You know, yes. I, I wasn't a part of any of the process prior to that. And then I heard it, and it was like, damn, these girls have done it. Right, you know, this, and you knew it was a hit. You knew it was going to... Did it feel like, oh, this is going to be a hit? Yeah, it did feel that way. That was your second big hit, that right? Was, that was my the, second cut with them. But the Travis song was a big hit, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. And and I thought that must have been wild because your version of that song is very... Diff- I went back today and I went yeah. and listened again. And, yeah. you know, you can really hear stuff in your... Vo- your version's very different than Travis's version. Yeah, yeah. Did you know he was going to do that? Make it sort of... Um, much more joyous kind of a song? Well, it's funny. That song is split. I mean, we could sit here almost in an English class and yes. dissect the song, and it's 50%, quote, happy, yeah. and 50% blues and dark. Right. So much so, you'll get a kick out of this, that once it was a hit, they, may, they cut it for our children's record. And they took out the bridge. Oh, that's great. Isn't that funny? Yeah, co- so they sure. took out the dark yeah, bridge. Yeah, of course. But when Travis did it, yeah, it was more joyous and celebration. And, and you know, it's funny. People still think that's, like, one of the most positive songs I got. And, and they, they might clap, be right. Like, when you play it, I'm coming to see you play tonight. Like, you play that song, people will be clapping along to it. Yeah, they'll be singing and all they'll that. They'll be singing and everything. Yeah. And so they, we kind of ignore that half of it's kind of dark. <laughs> no. And look, I mean, that's there's a long kind of tradition of that sort of thing. Um, do you still care about getting cuts? Is that Do you, do you co-write to get like, do you go do the Nashville co-write thing? Not very often. You know, it's funny. Even when I was kind of at in high cotton and good success is going on, I was songwriter of the year in both ASCAP and NSAI, you know, two different years. Right, and then so, you won the AMA Songwriter Song of the yeah, Year Award later and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, so all that stuff was going on. I'd seen enough from my fellow writers who had success five, ten years ahead of that to know, like, this, you know, the market is very fickle and do not count on this level of of achievement like for forever and so i knew what i was going to do and it's what i've done which is represent those other 300 you were going to build your you were going to build an audience a relationship with an audience through my me putting out my own records yeah and i knew that i knew that was my quote second career or 
back well, pocket. in a way, having having <clears throat> those songs covered by those artists gave you like kind of the wind in your sails to yeah to say, okay, I can now set my family up a little bit in like yeah. a life we can live. Yeah, and now I can go and be the musician I want to be. Right? right, and not not only did it. Well, it also set up the finances to make my own records. Right. So I would always pay for my own you records. You mean you just pay for your own records? Period. I pay for my own promotion, a radio, everything, artwork, everything comes to me. Uh, and therefore, you know, I, I control it. You're beholden to nobody. Yeah, because I, I learned a good lesson <laughs> that, you know, both even from a producer, like even in having a producer... No one cares about the music more than I do, and I, I about my music, and I know that. I know it. I know it. I know it. I've learned it. I mean, the, yeah. I guess there are producers. Over time, there have been some producers who somehow lock in. Oh, I think there's been, of course, amazing music created by producers who didn't write the stuff. But in my circle, I haven't met the person who cares more than I care about this stuff. Plus, I've got, I've got, the tools. I'm a session. I play. Yes. I'm an arranger. You know, I'm a singer. I, I know harmony. You can put the band together. You know yeah. who you want to play on what I, tracks. Yeah. They're going to come do it for you for uh, less money than they're going to do it for some. It could be, yeah. I mean, all that stuff. All of that stuff. I know the inside track. And I also know what I want it to be like. And so, other than engineers and musicians, I don't really look to others to uh, help me paint this uh, portrait. Well, yeah, you know, I was going to ask you what matters to you now on a day-to-day basis, but as, and as you look for the, to the future, but I think you're kind of answering it, which is playing... How old are your kids? 23, 26, 29. So they're gone. Yeah, they're gone. They're off in their world. Do they play music? My middle uh, child loves music. I mean, he gets home, and the first thing he does is grab a bass, a drum, a keyboard, something. He's, he's definitely, you know chasing it country does he do they like country music is it? yeah but they like everything too they they teach me a lot of and, music. and where do you where do you stand now on on because country music i mean it's funny i saw that montgomery gentry covered a couple of your tracks and i mean i weirdly enough i used to listen to them a good amount because they're like in certain ways the closest thing to the southern rock i liked when i grew mm-hmm. up they're not really yeah. country act to me they're yeah yeah, the traditional Molly Hatchet kind of, uh-huh. and like my politics in theirs are very different. I think because I think they're pretty. They were right. Well, one of them passed away, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I used to listen to them a lot. But I say is, you know, when it seems to me like country music goes in these in these cycles, and then there's like this Americana that's sort of like driving alongside country music. But once in a while, like um, I, my my daughter was playing me the High Women yesterday or the day before which is, you know, Amanda and those people. And, and uh, that feels like the stuff that you were trying to hope would come back. So I'm, I'm, do you feel like it's... Um, do you have hope that the kind of country music you care about, you know, that's, that's written for the reasons you write your songs and what's popular, do you think there's a, a chance that that stuff happens again? Or do you, you know, think it's too late? I have no idea. I, I do know that from uh, the Americana world is more encompassing of, of, of better writing, better uh, performances, and more authenticity than what I, I hear in country music. It doesn't mean that country music, by the marketplace version of country music, um, can't come back to a more authentic place, you know, where 
you know, Willie and Merle and, and Cash and Hank Williams and all that. I think it has potential, but boy, the, it sure looks like the signs aren't, aren't there toward authenticity. I love that line in your song where you talk about people trying to out-country other uh-huh. people. Yeah. And it does, and, I, and I, I, it occurred to me that um, this line came into my head, which was, you'd like to be in a, in a time back before uh, Outlaw became a brand. Yeah. Which is, you know... Because something happens when something becomes a brand. Uh, I'll give you an example. I loved Waylon before he was an outlaw. Right. You know, I had his albums when I was 8 and 10 and all that. And then the outlaw thing came up. And then it's like, oh, Waylon did not get better. You're playing Um, that character. Yeah, now there's a character of of oneself. And that's cool. It's successful and all. But, you know, give me the lifetime artist, you know. Give me Cash who in his last five albums made some of the best albums of his life, you know. Uh, well, When the Man Comes Around is like the great Johnny Cash. I mean, exactly. he hadn't written a song that good in 30 years. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then suddenly he writes that song with its ecclesiastical visions and mm-hmm. its sense of doom. And it was like, where did that, some of that just cracked her open. Yeah. But that's why I was thinking, I was thinking of Rick Rubin when I was going to say the thing to you about sometimes uh-huh. there is a producer. who Totally. Who, like, is able to see inside. Yeah. No, they're there. I just haven't had the opportunity to meet one or work with one. And those that I have worked with, there's a time limit to their love or concern. Focus. And let's face it, it's a gig. Right? For some folks, it's a gig. And so I'm looking for more than just a gigster, you know, uh... You know what I mean? And if it's just a gigster, I'll, I'll take it from here. Thank you. You know what I mean? And I'll do it in my own ignorant way. <laughs> I can't think of a better place to end on, actually, than that. Um, here's to not having a fuck with gigsters ever. Because I agree with you, man. Depressing. Listen, uh, here's the thing. Daryl Scott is, one of, is an American treasure. He's one of the great songwriters. And he's probably playing in a town near you. So yeah, probably so. Go see him. What, what, what's your website? Like, how can people find out what you're doing? DarylScott.com would do it. Are you on social media at all? Are you yeah. on the Twitter? I don't know. Okay, then. I'll have to ask someone. <laughs> all right. But you're, where you are is DarylScott.com. .com and also a Facebooky thing. So you can see his tour dates. He makes albums regularly. Um, go find the one with Uncle Lloyd on it. And start there if you don't know his music. And um, hey, Daryl, thank you for coming and doing this, man. I'm Brian, so glad we got great to talk. To see you. It really it's been is. a long time, man. Yeah, a long, long time. And um, after this, I gotta help you figure out how to get that album back from SPK. <laughs> All right, everybody, uh, you can find me at Brian Kaufman on Twitter. You can email me the moment bk at gmail dot com. Um, and uh, I'll see you next time, everybody. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Daryl.